Good morning. Good to see each of you with us this morning, especially if you're visiting with us. We want to let you know that you're our honored guest. We hope that you'll be back with us every opportunity that you can. Who here likes to watch old westerns, cowboy shows? I do. We've got a lot of people that do, looks like. David made sure and came in and let me know he likes to watch them too. I enjoy watching a good western every now and then. Whether we're talking about the old ones with John Wayne or Jimmy Stewart, Clint Eastwood, those classic ones. And to be honest, those were a lot before my time, a long time before my time. And so I've watched a few of them, but not nearly as many as some of you, I'm sure. But I can remember my papa, my grandfather on my dad's side, he used to watch them all the time. Every once in a while, I'd see him watch those. We might talk about the newer ones, or we might talk about the ones on TV like Gunsmoke, Bonanza, Little House on the Prairie, uh, examples such as these. The bottom line is that Westerns are a form of entertainment that has continued to be very popular uh, even into modern times. And Sometimes these type shows come out even to this day. I want you to think about Westerns that you've watched. And I want you to think about one of the essential elements of a good Western. Well, there's many essential elements of a good Western. Bank robbers, cowboys and Indians, sheriffs, horses, wagons, those sorts of things. But one of the essential elements that I think of as I'm watching a good Western is the old steam locomotive, right? If you go up to Ardmore, you can actually see one of these. And... Lindsay and the kids and I have enjoyed looking at that, and you see how massive those old locomotives are, those trains. Well, another essential element of these types of shows that I think about in connection and association with these steam trains, these locomotives, is that friendly old conductor. Remember those conductors? They always had the little, I guess, I don't know what kind of hat you'd call that, but a little conductor hat, and they also always had the little pocket watch, right? Why did they have that pocket watch? The reason they had those pocket watches had to do, of course, with time. Chase, what in the world does this have to do with the sermon? Well, it's the introduction, okay? Bear with me. So they've got these pocket watches, and... Of course, they're keeping time. Well, why is it important for a conductor of a train to keep accurate time? Now I think back to those old math problems, those math problems that I never could figure out. If train A is going west at 35 miles per hour and train B is going east at 40 miles per hour on the same tracks, How long will it be before they collide? And the answer is, in my mind, I have no idea. Somebody can figure that one out. Please let me know. I I always had trouble with that particular math problem. But that math problem illustrates what we're trying to say this morning, and that is that that conductor had to keep accurate time because there's a whole lot of trains that use those same tracks, and they go in opposite directions using those same tracks, and If they're not switched into a different track at just the right time, what's going to happen? You're going to have a collision. So that conductor then 
had a very important role in determining the time of departure for the train. All right, now we start getting into sermon material. The time of departure. You see that conductor with his pocket watch? He had an exact time of departure for the train. And if you're a passenger on that train, he's going to yell out, All aboard! And you better get on that train very quickly after he says that or you will get left. I think to times when I have flown in an airplane. And again, the time of departure, the time of liftoff of that plane going to whatever airport it's going to is important. Maybe you've been to an airport and you've flown before and you realize you better get there early. You better get there an hour, hour and a half, two hours before the flight leaves. Why? Because you got to get all your bags. you got to get them put on the plane. You've got to check in. You've got to go through security. And if you don't make it on time, guess what? That airplane's leaving, whether you like it or not, whether you're ready or not. So we have to make sure that we understand that there's a time of departure. Now, when we talk about departure times of trains and airplanes, that's one thing. But when we talk about the the departure time of our lives, that's another thing entirely. I want us to consider the fact that one day our departure will be at hand this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, Paul says that his departure time is at hand. 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8, Paul says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul says that his departure time is right upon him. In the words of the train conductor, he might say, all aboard, because the departure is at hand. What is Paul dealing with in this particular passage of Scripture? We go a few verses uh, ahead of this, and we look beginning in verse 1. We see that Paul is encouraging Timothy, the young preacher, to keep the faith, to keep on preaching, even in the face of various hardships that he might face. And Timothy is being encouraged to buckle down, to be firm, and to preach the word, to preach the truth, because people are sadly not going to want to hear it. There's a long history of God's men, whether we're talking about prophets or priests or apostles or preachers, and of course, ultimately, God's Son. There's a long history of God's men, if you will, being persecuted because they're preaching the truth that God would have them to preach, but men don't want to hear it. Well, Timothy is included in this number, and Paul is included in this number of men who have proclaimed the truth of God's word and have been persecuted because of it. In verse 1 of 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul charges Timothy before God and Jesus Christ who will judge the living 
and the dead. He charges him in verse 2 to preach the word. He says, be ready in season and out of season. You know that can mean a couple of things. Number one, it can mean be ready to preach the word on the spot. Maybe you've got an opportunity that you weren't expecting, but it's an opportunity to preach the word. Well, you have that sermon in the back of your mind and you preach it. It could be that men don't want to hear it. Sometimes they do want to hear it and sometimes they don't. doesn't matter. You preach it anyway. Preach it in season, out of season. It could be that you really just don't feel like preaching today, Timothy. Maybe you woke up on the wrong side of the bed, Timothy. Maybe you're just not feeling too well, but you know what? Preach the word anyway. And so Paul encourages him to preach the word in season and out of season. He says convince. This is the idea of initially converting people to the gospel. Convince them. And then he says rebuke. This is calling people back once they have become Christians, but they've ventured back into sin again. You have to rebuke. You have to call them back. He says convince. He says rebuke. And then he says exhort. Encourage them. And how do you do this, Timothy? Well, you do it with all long suffering. Yes, it's true. People are people. You're going to have to bear with them. You're going to have to bear them along because they're not perfect. And so you've got to do it with long suffering. And also you've got to do it with teaching, with doctrine, with the doctrine of Christ. Well, then in verses 3 and 4, Paul says that the time is going to come when men would not endure sound doctrine. They would not endure healthy doctrine, true doctrine, but rather they would gather to themselves false teachers who would teach them what they want to hear because the people had itching ears. Then in verse 5, Paul makes the point that Timothy would have to be watchful. He would have to endure afflictions. He would have to do the work of an evangelist. Brethren, that's work. It takes work to be long-suffering and to teach doctrine and to bear with people and to help people and to give counsel to people to help them to be faithful Christians. Paul says, Timothy, even though it takes a lot of work, you do it. Be that good, faithful evangelist that God would have you to be and you fulfill your ministry. In this context, the context of encouraging another preacher, Timothy, Paul says, essentially, I've done my part. My time is almost up. There's not much more I can do. And so, Timothy, I charge you to keep up the work. So he says, my departure is at hand. He says it's being poured out as a drink offering. Of course, Timothy, or, or Paul rather, is, is going to be put to death in Rome for the cause of Christ. His departure is at hand. But you know what? I'm sure there was anticipation. I'm sure there might have been a little bit of anxiety on Paul's part, just as Christ had anxiety before he went to the cross. And he poured out those prayers to God and he poured out the sweat drops of blood. Sure, there was anxiety. But you know what? Paul knew who he believed in. And he was persuaded that God was able to save him 
And he knew it wouldn't be long he would obtain his victory crown. And that's what he says. He says in verse 8, verse 7, he says he's fought the good fight. He's finished the race. He's kept the faith. And then verse 8, it says there's laid up for him a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Well, that's a promise. That's a promise that if we are faithful, if we're found faithful in the end, as Paul, I'm sure, was, and Timothy, and and all these heroes of the faith, if we're found faithful, we'll receive that crown as well. But we have to realize that we all have a departure coming. We have to realize that the time of our departure will soon be at hand. Hebrews 9 verse 27 says, It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Death is an appointment that we all must keep. I don't know about you, but I have canceled doctor's appointments before. I have canceled an appointment with the dentist before, or the eye doctor, or what have you. Why? Ooh, I, just, I really should go, but I, I'm scared I'm going to get bad news, more cavities, change my eyeglass prescription. And so, you know, I should go, but I think I'll cancel it. Well, we can do that with doctor's appointments, but we can't cancel our appointment with death. It is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. Death does not operate upon cancellation, readjust, reassess, and make a new appointment. It doesn't operate that way. Does this mean that the exact date down to the very second of our last breath is already determined? Some believe that, and I understand why. Personally, I think that what he's saying here in Hebrews 9.27 is it is appointed that we will die. And of that, it is a certainty unless we're alive and remain when the Lord returns. It is a certainty that we will die. The reason I say that and not, uh, as some may believe, the very second of our death is determined, because of instances such as murder and suicide, those are interfering with what would have been the plan for our lives. I don't see how it would make any sense that God would pre-appoint the day that someone's going to be murdered or the day that someone's going to commit suicide because in a way it makes sense to me that that would be an intervention of free will. Now some may disagree with that, but the, the point that we really need to understand here is that we will die one day. We will die. We have an appointment. We will pass away unless Jesus Christ returns while we're still living. But even then, the Bible says that we will be changed. And so we're not going to be in this flesh and blood shell, if you will, of what we're used to. We're going to come to a point where that's no longer the case. And if we're Christians, we'll be given a new body that We don't exactly understand what it will look like. We will be spiritually 
uh, put in in heaven in in a new setting that uh, we we may wonder about and think about, but the point is it's going to be different. We're going to be in a new situation. When we think about our appointment with death, we think about how it will come one day, or at least if Jesus is, if he comes while we remain, then we will be changed one day. We think about this, we need to realize that death goes all the way back to the garden. You can see Romans 5, verse 12. Sin entered into the world and so entered death. In the beginning, God formed man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the nostrils of man and man became a living soul, Genesis 2, verse 7. When the time of our departure comes, our soul separates itself from the flesh of this dust and returns to God to be judged. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7, that when we die, the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. James wrote a similar passage in James 2, 26, that the body without the Spirit is dead. And so death is this separation of body and spirit. This is man's lot in life. We all will pass away. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 20 says, All go to one place. All are from the dust and all return to dust. It's sometimes said this way at at the graveside, dust to dust and ashes to ashes. We commit the body of this person to the ground and his soul to God in heaven who gave it. And that is an accurate depiction of what happens when we pass away. Job 34 verse 15 says, All flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. Yes, this is man's lot in life ever since the fall. Genesis 3.19, included in Adam's punishment, it says, In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This is our common lot in life when we choose through our own free will to commit sin against God, we receive punishment for that. We all physically will die one day, or if we're alive and remain when Jesus uh, is here, then we'll be changed. And sin also causes spiritual death. Sin causes spiritual death, which is separation from God. And if we do not partake of the remedy for that, then we'll be in trouble on the day of judgment. Well, what is the remedy for that spiritual death that takes place when we sin? That remedy is Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father but by me. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 teaches us that we're separated from the Father when we sin. Well, the only way back to the Father is through Jesus Christ. 
We all have a time of departure. But even more so than preparing for the departure itself, we need to ask ourselves what happens after our departure. You see, death is something that no one really looks forward to in the sense that it's our natural tendency to be fearful of death and to preserve our lives. That's the way we are. Otherwise, we would just do all sorts of dangerous things that would lead to very quickly a decrease in the population. That would be counterproductive to what God wants us to do, to be fruitful and multiply and and fill the earth. And so we have these natural tendencies to not want to die, to preserve our lives. We realize that as Christians, if we're faithful Christians, we can look forward to not necessarily the idea of, of death, but we can look forward to being in heaven with God one day. And we have that hope. And that's what makes us different than the world around us that doesn't have hope. But even more so than the fear of physical death, we need to think about the fear of the second death. We need to think about fearing the second death, which is to be cast into hell. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 16, the Bible plainly says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them, nowhere to hide. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades, the grave, delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. The death, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Other passages written about this event say that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Our common lot in life is the departure that is the first departure physical death, but thankfully we do not all have to experience the second departure, which is the departure into everlasting fire and brimstone. We know that Jesus has taught us that he will say on that day to some, in fact to many, in fact to most, he will say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Jesus will say that one day to countless billions and billions of people who never knew God. 
Hebrews 9.27 again says, It is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. It is true that many on that day will hear, Depart from me. But it's also true that many others, although not as many as those who who will hear depart, but many will still hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in to the joy of the Lord. You want to hear that on the day of judgment? I do. I do not want to hear the other. Those are our options. We've got two options before us. We can hear on the day of judgment, enter in to the joy of your Lord, or we can hear depart from me. Workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Immediately before the sitting at the judgment seat of Christ mentioned there, listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 through 18. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Who's Paul talking about? He's talking about the faithful. You see, when we talk about the judgment day, when we talk about the resurrection, when we talk about what happens after death as Christians, as faithful Christians, we can comfort one another with what's going to happen. but only if we're faithful Christians when that time comes. Let's turn and read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll begin in verse 50. First Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 50. Paul writes here, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We're not going to inherit it in this physical sense that we live in today. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, O grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. 
But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the way. Victory is possible through Him. Daniel 12 verse 2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Whether or not we will awake to everlasting life or to everlasting destruction and shame and contempt depends on how we are living our lives in the here and now. Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 says, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. It will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There is no partiality with God. There's another verse. In Romans, incidentally, talks about the Jew and the Greek. Romans 1.16 I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You see, the point is that we have, every one of us, an opportunity to be saved. Through the gospel, through Jesus Christ, through His coming and living and teaching and dying for us and resurrecting unto life, we have the opportunity to resurrect unto life as well in that day. How do we do it? We obey the gospel. Jesus will return one day in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who know not God and do not obey His gospel. But we can obey His gospel. Paul said in Romans chapter 10, They have not all obeyed the gospel. I bet he wrote that with a tear in his eye. We can do it. And it's so simple. We obey the gospel by being buried with Christ in baptism, putting that old man of sin to death. We raise up to walk in newness of life. We do that, having heard the gospel, believing in Christ, repenting of our sins, confessing Christ. We put him on in baptism. We bury ourselves in baptism. We put that old man of sin to death. We rise up and we're a new creation in Christ. Do you believe that? Have you done that? You can be baptized into Christ today if you've never done that. You'll be a Christian. The Lord will add you to His church and you don't have to fear death anymore. You don't have to worry about the second death because it won't have any part of you. If you're a Christian and you remain faithful unto death. Revelation 2 verse 10. 
for sake of time, we won't read this passage, but I want you to think about it. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. See, we've talked about what's going to happen after our deaths and on the day of judgment. What about the in-between? This is the account of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man, he fared sumptuously in this life. That means he lived extravagantly. He had it all. He had every comfort that you could imagine in that day and age. Meanwhile, you had Lazarus. Lazarus, he had a hard lot in life. Covered in sores placed at the gate of that old rich man's house and begging to eat the crumbs of his table. And the dogs came and they licked his sores. The passage of time, they both pass away. Lazarus, he makes it to Abraham's bosom. Rich man, he's in torment. He's in Hades, in, in torment, the poor Lazarus who had a horrible lot in life, he makes it to paradise, a place of comfort. And that old rich man, you know what he can see? He can see old Lazarus. And now the tables have turned. And Lazarus has the good life. Lazarus will have eternal life. And he's being comforted in Abraham's bosom. And that old rich man, he's sitting there in the torment of this flame. And night and day, the smoke of his torment is arising and he's looking up and he says, Abraham, please send me Lazarus. Send me Lazarus. Let him dip just a drop of water to cool my tongue. Just a drop. Just honor that one request. Abraham says no. You had your comfort. You chose to live a life of high crime against our sovereign God. You won't do that. If I can't get any comfort in this flame, please just send him back then and, and let him talk to my brothers. Please. I don't want them to come here. They ain't living right either. Do not want them to come here. Please send Lazarus back. Let him talk to them. Abraham says no. They've got Moses. They've got the prophets. They won't hear them. They won't hear somebody who would come back from the that's the picture of what it is like to be in torment because we didn't live our lives right. We weren't prepared for the time of our departure. That's one of the scariest passages in the Bible, but you know what? For Lazarus, it's one of the most comforting passages in the Bible. This morning, are you that rich man? Or are you Lazarus?
Think about your life this morning. We're going to end with this passage from 1 Corinthians 15. We looked at it earlier. Let's see what that last verse said. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. In the Lord. Is that you this morning? Are you a Christian? Are you going to be ready when the time of your departure comes at hand? You can be. We know that many will not be. Make sure that you will be ready. Make your life right if it's not. As together we stand and sing.